You know, we all know that death is as natural as birth. But there's something about it that doesn't seem to fit. Death is the ultimate sign of our frailty emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Physically, it will come to us all regardless of our economic status, our education, or our level of health. And emotionally, the strongest of us can rip apart at the seams when a loved one dies or there's illness. Spiritually, death serves as a reminder of the weight of sin. The consequence for, the sin, for sin, according to the Bible, is death. And the reason for it is our choosing. God wants life for us, but we chose sin. That is life apart from God. So without God, there is only death, and it's our choice. Physically, every heart will stop beating one day, and spiritually, we're separated from God for all of eternity unless we are rescued by Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate at Easter, a great rescue from the serious sickness of sin. And although death is often labeled the final blow, there are reminders of our frailty almost every day. Everything from a flat tire to job frustration to depression that we just can't seem to beat, We're reminded that something is amiss, aren't we? We're reminded that we're meant for more. Do you you feel it? Every time you over-entertain yourself, every time you overindulge on food, I never do that, just ask my kids. No, I do, unfortunately. Every time you use some sort of substance to make you happy, every time we use a relationship to somehow fill a void in us, aren't we constantly trying to Stuff our souls with something to fill it? Don't we know that just something is not right? The resurrection speaks to both the seemingly fatal blow of death and the intermediate jabs we face every day that remind us of our weakness. We know that the resurrection of Jesus should speak to the trials we face in our daily lives, but how? We know that without the cross and the resurrection, our faith becomes a mere self-improvement strategy. Many view a relationship with Jesus through that lens, that that following and serving Jesus is, is about somehow the scales evening out in the end, that we do enough good things to appease God. We desperately desire a list to work on, don't we? Control over our weaknesses. We look for the next book or counselor or diet or workout. And although we know the resurrection speaks to our broken situation, we we don't quite know how. If we're honest, the resurrection of Jesus often seems like old news in our lives. We may know, for some of you, theologically what it means, but it doesn't impact the, the daily depression. It doesn't impact the daily annoyance with the kids. It doesn't impact the insecurity about what you're going to do for a living a couple years from now. There's no practical impact on our lives. It's there. It's barely audible but nondescript. We hear verses like Galatians 2.20 that say, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And it goes, this beautiful truth goes in one ear and out the other because it seems too good to be true that Jesus has truly given us a new life, a new hope, new joy, 
lasting peace in him. There can be an end to the minimizing of the resurrection in our lives. It can be more than something we celebrate once a year. The resurrection can break through mere theory into our lives and dare us to hope, dare us to leave the things that we think will bring joy and happiness, turn our backs on them, and experience the power, the joy, the peace, the love, and the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reality is that there's nothing we can do to personally walk in this resurrected life. There are no religious obligations we can fulfill like church attendance or Bible reading or good deeds that fulfill some kind of prerequisite that qualifies us to walk out the resurrected life. The resurrection is an historical event that happened in time and space offering us something to be received, not something to work for. We typically think of what we can get out of any given, per, any given situation or person. Family makes us feel safe, or at least is supposed to. Some of our family are friends we choose. Friends make us feel accepted. Employees make us feel powerful. But Jesus doesn't take. He gives. That's what Jesus does. He gives. He thought of us on the cross, and his resurrection gives new life to that dead space in us that we know, we just know something has to fill it. The resurrection is about admitting our hopeless oppression, the hopeless oppression we cannot escape from sin's chokehold on us and to receive the gift of new life in Jesus Christ. And I believe the impact of the resurrection is best felt just through reading through the story of the resurrection. And that's what we're going to do tonight. And I ask you, as we read through this story, we're going to have several readers read, uh, and there'll be references up on the screen. Feel free, I'd encourage you, in fact, to grab your Bible or your phone and read along. Uh, but it, it's just too much for us to put on the screen. It'd make you dizzy probably trying to follow it. But it's worth it. It's worth it because as you read it, I think you'll be able to put yourself in the mind and the heart of the Roman guard who faints because he sees the angel announcing that Jesus has risen. I think you'll be able to put yourself in the hands and the feet of the women who witnessed the empty tomb and wondered, could, could this be true? Could... Could it be true what he claimed, that he rose from the dead, that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords? I think it can dare us to hope that what Jesus claimed to do, rise from the dead, conquer our sin, conquer our hopelessness, conquer those things that separate us from intimacy with God and bring life to us. And I pray that for us now. Lord, as we go through the simple reading of your story, we know we join millions around the world. We join the persecuted churches in various parts of China. Lord, we join the persecuted churches, many of which we visited in India. Lord, we join the churches around this community that we know and love, brothers and sisters who serve you with all of their heart. And we remember, we remember, Lord, that you are in the business of giving life. 
And we look forward to what you have for us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. This all happened on Friday, the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath. As evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea took a risk and went to Pilate and asked for use his body. Joseph was an honored member of the High Council, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. Pilate couldn't believe that Jesus was already dead, so he called for the Roman officer and asked if he had died yet. The officer confirmed that Jesus was dead, so Pilate told Joseph he could have the body. Joseph bought a long sheet of linen cloth. Then he took Jesus' body down from the cross, wrapped it in the cloth, and laid it in a tomb that had been carved out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone in front of the entrance. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus' body was laid. The next day, on the Sabbath, the leading priests and Pharisees went to see Pilate. They told him, Sir, you remember what the deceiver once said while he was still alive. After three days, I will rise from the dead. So we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. This will prevent his disciples from coming and stealing his body and then telling everyone he was raised from the dead. If that happens, we'll be worse off than we were at first. Pilate replied, Take guards and secure it the best you can. So they sealed the tomb and posted guards to so God's glory is always to reveal life out of death. What I mean is he creates order and life out of the chaotic nothingness that came before creation. He brings hope in the midst of despair, epitomized by Jesus' resurrection from death itself. And ultimately, we know that if we, for those of us who know and love Jesus, we will see it when he resurrects these bodies. Because as we celebrate the resurrection, we're not only celebrating that Jesus rose and that he came to give us life spiritually, but that also one day when we pass from this life, we'll be given new bodies in the next. He comes to make all things new. Jesus' resurrection gives new life spiritually and physically. And as we read this story, notice that if you, if you read a sanitized version of history, let's say that you were in North Korea right now, and you were reading their history, you would read a sanitized version where all the leaders in power seemed too good to be true. But here, you're going to read about conspiracy theories. You're going to read about those who are very low on the social ladder, who are who are elevated as ones who see the, the resurrected Christ for the very first time, it's real. Because real life is filled with all kinds of uh, confusion and the complexity of human nature, and you see that here. You see history, not just a story. So that leads us into the empty tomb and the resurrection, and rather the reactions of those who knew and loved Jesus. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the women. Don't be afraid, he said. 
I know you are looking for Jesus, who is crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come, see where his body was lying. And now, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I've told you. The women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but also filled with great joy, and they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they ran to him, grasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers and leave, to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. As the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and told the leading priests what had happened. A meeting with the elders was called, and they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe. They told the soldiers, You must say, Jesus' disciples came during the night while we were sleeping, and they stole his body. If the governor hears about it, we'll stand up for you so you won't get in trouble. So the guards accepted the bribe and said what they were, what they were told to say. Their story spread widely among the Jews, and they still tell it today. So they rushed back from the tomb to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. But the story sounded like nonsense to the men, so they didn't believe it. So the women's words seemed like nonsense to them. The women went to the other disciples, and the others didn't believe them. Now, if you were to make up this story, why would you have those who followed him the most closely be his first cynics after his resurrection? Because when someone rises from the dead, it's a little hard to believe unless you have proof, right? It's not dissimilar to our situation today. We're transformed by the resurrection. Uh, some of us have been transformed by the resurrection. We tell others, and then they don't believe us. But the resurrection doesn't ask us, Jesus doesn't ask us to believe in his resurrection blindly because that's the linchpin, the pinnacle of our relationship with Jesus. If he rose from the dead, then drop everything because he's awesome. He's awesome, and he wants to change us, and he can consume our entire life, and he's worth it. He should be our priority and our first love, what makes our heart beat fast and what we put our hands to work for. But if he didn't rise, at the very best, it's a great tradition. And they want a proof, and that's okay, because we're not asked to believe blindly. There is proof. First, Jesus' first skeptics, as I said, were his own disciples. A future spiritual re resurrection would have been conceivable to them, but an instant physical resurrection would have just been outside of their thought. The disciples had a show-me-first perspective on the resurrection, just like we have today. Show me. Show me. So we shouldn't be surprised when some struggle with the concept of the resurrection. Even those who physically walked with Jesus and talked with him and, and knew of the prophecies regarding the resurrection that were written hundreds of years prior, even they struggled. Additionally, proof abounds in the fact that the first century church would not have falsely contrived a story using the testimony of women 
who were unfortunately then viewed as property. So why would you have women being the, the primary witnesses of Jesus? You know, many view uh, uh, Jesus as, and, and faith in Jesus as oppressive to women, but actually the opposite is true. It's a liberator of women. The first to herald that Jesus had risen from the dead were women. And I don't believe that was by accident. Jesus always takes those things that society says aren't worth a darn. And he goes to the least and says, no, these are my beloved. I I created these ones. And I love them. And I want to elevate them. Not to mention his key followers, as we mentioned, were skeptical before they encountered proof. And we see that as the story unfolds. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she, stood and lo- she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear women, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they've put him. She turned to leave and, someone, and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you've taken him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabbi, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I've seen the Lord. Then she gave them his message. That same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them, but God kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, You must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there the last few days. What things, Jesus asked. The things that happened to Jesus, the man of Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who would come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who told them Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to see, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. Then Jesus said to them, You foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all the prophets wrote in the scriptures. 
Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey. Jesus acted as if he was going on, but they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. So he went home with them. As they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes were open and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 disciples and the others who had gathered with them, who said, the Lord has really risen, he appeared to Peter. Then the two of them from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they had recognized him as he was breaking the bread. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said, but the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands, look at my feet. You, can't, you can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I am not a ghost, because ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. As he spoke, he showed his hands and his feet. Still, they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. Then he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it as they watched. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water, and headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about a hundred yards from shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to the shore. There were 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, follow me. Peter turned around and saw behind them the disciple Jesus loved, the one who had leaned over to Jesus during supper and asked, Lord, who will betray you? Peter asked Jesus, what about him, Lord? Jesus replied, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is it to you? As for you, follow me. So the rumor spread among the community of believers that this disciple wouldn't die. But that isn't what Jesus said at all. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is it to you? This disciple is the one who testifies to these events and has recorded them here. And we know that this account of these things is accurate. Jesus also did many other things. If they were all written down, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. Then Jesus led them to Bethany, and lifting his hands to heaven, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. So they worshipped him, and then returned to Jerusalem filled with great joy. And they spent all their time in the temple praising God. There's so much proof within the last part of the story that we just heard from Mike and Sarah. There's so much detail from these ones who, just like us, wanted to know, is this really true? The pinnacle of this life that I have given myself to for, in many cases, years now, is this true? And we evaluate history uh, by what's written down. And if you look at all of history, recorded in all the history books, I can't get into all the details tonight, but take our membership class and I get into all the nitty-gritty. No piece of written history compares to the proof, even comes close, is even in the same stratosphere as the proof that we have for this event in history the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the number of witnesses, the number of manuscripts over different areas written by different types of people all coming together to form a body, a story that we can trust. But that's not what I want to emphasize here because we've talked about that quite a bit tonight. I want to ask you, does your heart burn within your chest? We just read in Luke 24, it says, they said to each other, this was on the road to Emmaus, I mean, Jesus had just appeared to them. And they, you know, they didn't have the benefit of reading the whole story together like we just did. They didn't have that. I mean, this was happening to them in, in real time. And they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? Did not our hearts burn within us? For those that God prepares, some of you tonight, your hearts, your minds are buzzing with excitement right now. That's the Spirit of God wooing you to himself. 
That's not a pastor preaching. That's not readers reading. That's not people singing songs from the stage. That is the Spirit of God moving in you just as he moved among these disciples on the road to Emmaus. Because Jesus' resurrection is just as powerful today as it was then. And through the Spirit of God, the resurrection can be more alive and powerful in us than it even was in those disciples who walked with them because the Spirit of God lives in us now. And in a moment, you'll be able to respond. I just want to ask one question, end on one question here. Do you see Jesus as both fully human and fully God? That's a very key question. Notice of all the things Jesus could have done as the resurrected son of God, what he does. You know, you would think, I don't know, that uh, he would win the NCAA championship or, you know, at the very least. Or maybe he, that was supposed to be funny, guys. I mean, I <laughs> guess it wasn't. Yeah, it struck out on that one. Uh, uh, you would expect it of him maybe to have the whole world bow down to him right then. I mean, he just did the greatest thing in all of history for all of time. But notice what he does. It says in Luke 24, 42, I mean, you just can't make this up. They gave him a piece of broiled fish. You know, a bunch of country fishermen who just had normal, run-of-the-mill, salt-of-the-earth jobs. You know, they knew they were fishermen. Peter was like, I don't know what else we have to do now. Let's go fishing. So they go fishing, and Jesus says, give me a piece of fish. You know, this was Jesus. They knew Jesus. They, they had had fish with them many times. And now he is the resurrected Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he asked for fish and chips. He simply ate with them. The resurrected Christ ate. He was fully human, and yet he was fully God. Another way of posing this question is, do you see Jesus as both fully able to empathize with your humanness and fully sovereign and in control over it all? You see, this is important because if Jesus is fully human, uh, if he's just fully human, then he's a good historical figure. He's one whose love for people we should follow and emulate, but at the very most, he's just kind of a spiritual guru who did something really good. But it doesn't deal with our biggest problem, which is sin, and the end result, which is eternal separation from God. So if Jesus is only human, he's reserved to the realm of just a good person in history. On the other hand, if Jesus is fully God and not fully human, then we're dead in our sins because the Bible says that our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, that we've all, falled, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We can't possibly meet his standards. We need a Savior, and because Jesus is fully God, he suffers the penalty that we deserve for sin, which is separation from God. To put it in simple terms, let's say you commit a crime and you have to appear in a court of law. The only person who can free you is the judge. But if you told the judge, judge, I'm okay because yesterday I served at a soup kitchen and just last week I prayed for you know, three under-resourced people to get gas. And you know, just last month I helped three elderly women across the street, so I think I'm good. Now, besides this judge having a funny story to tell his family and friends, he would say, I'm sorry, Chris. You know, I'm sure you've done a lot of good things, but you know what? You have been charged with a crime, and you are going to pay the penalty for that crime. 
no matter the good deeds, you're still guilty. Your only hope would be for the judge to pardon you. But Jesus did more than that because God's justice must be fully satisfied. God's perfect. A judge could assure that you slip through some kind of legal crack because he or she likes you. But God is the perfect judge and sin cannot go unpunished. We understand this sense of justice because we want to see justice done when a serious crime is committed. Let's say murder. We don't want someone who's murdered a loved one just to to skate on by. We want justice. It's built in us by God, the perfect judge. God sees sin for what it is. It's treason against God, and we are all guilty of treason, not just against a president, not just against our family, the person we love most in this world, but against the almighty God. It doesn't matter what other people think regarding our righteousness or even what we think about our righteousness. What matters ultimately is what does God think? And he says that all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, even the best among us. Not only are our righteous deeds like filthy rags to God, but he also says that we we all don't stand a chance of being in right relationship with God. We cannot meet his standards. So we all must face the due penalty for our sin, which is separation from God. But God in the flesh paid the penalty that we deserved. I said at the beginning, when we celebrate the resurrection, we're celebrating a great rescue mission. That Jesus, God in the flesh, fully paid our penalty for sin. Worship team, you can go ahead and come on up. He he sympathizes with our weaknesses. And when we see him face to face... He will have the same scars that he bore on the cross in his wrist. He will have the same scars that he bore on his back and on his head as they whipped and beat him. And that's really important. That's really important because I don't know about you, but when I'm really going through it, I don't always need all the answers as to why God does this and that. But what I do want is one who can sympathize. And it says that when Jesus was on the cross, he took all of our sins upon himself. So that doesn't mean just the act of sin itself, but also all of the trash that comes out of it. For those who have been abused, the sleepless nights, the tears, the fear, for those who have been the object of racism, the bitterness, the sense of oppression, for those who have... uh, suffered under uh, some type of legal issue where uh, maybe they were victimized by another person, Jesus carried that with him on the cross. And for those who have balled up their fist and they've been the ones who've done the beating, they've been the ones who put the drug to their lips or the bottle to their mouth or the, the needle to their arm, he took it all upon himself. All of our brokenness, all of our sin. And guess what he did? He conquered it. He rose from the dead. So when we look back on our past and we look back on our sin and we look back on ourselves as abuser or one who's been abused, he not only sympathizes with our weaknesses, weeps with us, meets us in our brokenness as a beloved counselor, a friend, a father, a daddy, a brother but he conquered it. 
as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So when we look at our current circumstances or we look at the shade of our past and feel overwhelmed, we can say, I walk now not in what I have done, but what he has done. And I'm not going to go to the empty things of this world to try to fill this hole in me that I'm constantly trying to fill with anything I could get my hands on because I know that something is amiss. And many of us have tried good things. We've tried relationships with loved ones. We've tried the role of mother, of father, of grandmother, grandfather, brother, sister, employee, boss. We've tried so many things. We've earned degrees that we thought would fill that gap. And many of us have done all kinds of sinful things to try to fill that hole. But we can look towards the resurrection of Jesus Christ and say, He is my life. I don't look to my own moral track record. I don't look to my own ability to obey God and be moral. I know there's one who has suffered in my place, who sympathizes with all of my weaknesses, who is tempted in every way, yet was without sin. It was the perfect sacrifice, suffering in my place and conquering all those things that try to kill and destroy my relationship with God and my relationship with others. The resurrection speaks to every square centimeter of your life. Every square centimeter. In Jesus' name, amen.